You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Uh, Emily and I are still, uh, we're in part three of Judges mm-hmm. and part three starting chapter two. Correct. So we're going to be getting to that in just a little bit, but first we got to talk about what happened last night. Uh, we had some good food last night. Some really good food last <laughs> night. So those of you who uh, don't know us, we grew up on a farm and, you know, we, we did not have a whole lot of money, neither did grandma and grandpa. So when we raised cows and when they got sent to the slaughterhouse, we often used as much of the cow as anyone could stand and grandma used to make cow's tongue mm-hmm. uh, which was delicious and, and she only did it when grandpa was away because he wouldn't eat it <laughs> i say it was it was really good and so every now and again we would get, we would have it i know it sounds really weird but the, the last time i had uh tongue tacos uh was well apart from last night was years ago i was in dallas and me and some friends were uh leaving a leaving a show at like two in the morning <laughs> and one of my friends goes, Hey, let's go get tacos. And I'm, you know, we're okay. Where are we going to go get tacos? It's two in the morning. And he goes, just follow me. So I'm following him. I don't know where we went to, but I know we wound <laughs> up in a Chevron station and he, uh, he says, it helps if you know a little bit of Spanish to order here. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, I don't know much Spanish, but I, I lo- I'm looking over the menu and he goes, if you need help, let me know. And so I, I'm like, I look and I see tacos de lingua on the that menu. That makes Spanish, I understand. And I'm like, <laughs> this kind of translates. And I ask him, like, is that tongue tacos? He's like, yeah. I'm like, I need three of those. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, that was the last time I had had tongue. And then we've had one in the freezer for a while now. And uh, Mickey and I planned far enough ahead because we knew you knew how to prepare it. <laughs> and Mickey had never prepared it before. I hadn't prepared it before either. And so it, it was, uh, it kind of worked out. And so thanks for your help on that. Those were some of the most delicious tacos I've had in years. Now, my fear is that the next time that you get a half a beef and have the tongue, then you aren't going to wait until I'm here. To- <laughs> we, we can, we can wait till you're here if you'd like. Because and they turned out very, they very turned good. Out, they turned out really well. Now I will have to probably, uh, I may check with the, uh, the processor and see if they have any extra tongues for sale that no one wants because because the tongue that came from the the little the bulk half we had was kind of small yeah um, and it wouldn't it would have fed it would have made maybe two or three tacos right but, uh, but that one the other one from the the older cow was that that was the bulk of the meat well and you know before anyone goes hating on us this is this is really good food and if you haven't tried it you you need to yeah and i just think it's daunting because when you get it it looks like a tongue yeah like all (laughs) all the other cuts of meat you can like a steak or roast you you Mm -hmm. can maybe guess where those came from maybe but for the most part uh they don't look like the animal anymore (laughs) but uh but you know you you chop it up real fine when you eat it and you won't, I mean, if you didn't know what it was, you wouldn't have known. You'd just been like, wow, this is the most tender meat exactly. I've ever had. And it just, it does. You you put it, it in was, the crock pot and, and then you 
kind of fry it up to firm it up a little bit. I mean, it's mm-hmm. actually so tender you have to fry it up after you cook it to firm it up. Yeah. It's it's that good. It just melts. It, it really does. And yeah, and, you know, it's one of the few things I actually do know how to cook. So for those of y'all who are doubting my homemaking domestic skills, there you go. Um, <laughs> I can do this one thing. Yeah. So, <laughs> so anyway, but I just, I just wanted to, to tell everyone about that because you probably saw it on our Instagram feed last weekend and <laughs> and we're wondering what that was. Kind of odd pictures actually out of context. So <laughs> yeah, well, it was it was delicious. So if you're into uh, tongue tacos, um, hit us up. If you're in Norman, we can make some. <laughs> yeah. Hey, that sounds like a good idea. Maybe that should be a Patreon perk. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Tongue tacos or or, uh, you know. Come over, we'll cook for you, and uh, it may or may not be tongue tacos. It, it could be something, but we'll, we'll figure out, you know, spur the moment. Okay, forget it. My brain's just totally shut off. I'm focusing on on judges. Okay, and... well, let's get back there then. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, because there's so much to keep in, in tension, and there's like this whole web of the Bible starts to emerge when we start looking at judges. And I, I think we kind of showed some of that last week with uh, chapter one that you really have to have those connections going back particularly to Joshua and then into Numbers and also into Genesis. And that this is, there's a continuity here. And the continuity not only reaches into the past, but it also reaches forward. So real quick recap, just for folks who um, may have missed it but or may have slept since then. <laughs> um, you know, the people had been given their land allotments and Joshua had promised that God was going to go before them and drive out the enemies. but the people dropped the ball. Right. They they just they started relying on their own abilities, their own uh, cleverness, their own military might, instead of relying on God to be the one who wins the battles on their behalf. Right. And so, in this failure, you know, there, there's repercussions. And not only did they fail to to win the battles, they also they moved in and they just became a part of the culture and they actually enslaved some people. And this is. Uh, it should be pointed out that's a different kind of slavery than what's prescribed in the Torah for the repayment of debts and also uh, uh, prisoners of war. That that's this is a kind of slavery that is excessive. Uh, if you know you can have slavery that's not excessive, I, I don't know, but it, it's not what the Torah prescribes. Sure, that that's the main point. So as we move into chapter two, God is getting ready to address everything that's gone wrong. Right. And, and it begins with uh, verse one, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal, Gilgal to Bochim. Um, now, Gilgal was located outside of Jericho. This was the first major camp that they had settled in inside of Canaan. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they built a 12-stone memorial there. They circumcised all the men because there were no circumcisions on the desert trek. Uh, they didn't do that until they actually got into Canaan. This is the first time that they had celebrated Passover in Canaan. It, it all happened at Gilgal. And it was kind of like the makeshift place of worship until Shiloh becomes the established center of worship later. Okay. And it, it acts as the staging area for most of the battles. So this is why the angel of the Lord's here. This is kind of the central government at this point. Sure. Now, Bochim is literally means weepers, and it, it's named this um, not as a formal name of the city. Um, it, it's just to denote what happens there. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be a lot of weeping because what the angel of the Lord has to say 
is it, well, it's not good. <laughs> well, I, I mean, you you would actually, I mean, uh, kind of a an, an idea of that would be like um, the Windy City. The Windy, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Windy City, or the Big Apple, or mm-hmm. you know, it's that's not technically the name of it. But that gives you an idea of of what people think of when they think of that place, and, and people know exactly what you're talking about when yeah. you say those. So the, it's, yes, very much the same idea. And it just goes to prove people are people. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what time period we're talking about. We, we fall into some of the same patterns of behavior. So whether you're talking 1,300 years ago or today. Sure. So um, this is also very close to the Oak of Weeping uh, in Genesis 35.8. That's where Deborah's, uh, I'm sorry, Deborah, Rebecca's nursemaid, had mm-hmm. died. And um, we're going to return to this place, too, in uh, Judges 4. Yeah. Because this is going to be very near where the prophet Deborah is going to be working. Right. So the angel of the Lord, he says, And I said to you, I brought, brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Uh, Lots of I statements there. And I think most of us understand. Which I mean if you're talking to someone about good advice on how to handle confrontations, <laughs> right. use your this I statement. Exactly. And that's the thing. He, he's saying this is my responsibility. But when you read this, is it an angel or is it God speaking? And I, I think we have to revisit this idea. Um, and I know we've talked about it before, but we miss it in the text that when we talk about the Malach uh, Adonai or the Malach Hashem, the angel of the Lord, we're talking about embodied God. Right. So this is not just any old angel. This is, and it's not even a prophet. And that's actually, some people want to read it this way, that this is a prophet speaking on behalf of God, hmm. because Moloch means messenger. Messenger, yeah. And so um, linguistically, you can kind of get there. But I think this kind of goes back and reaffirms that opening statement in Judges 1 that the people inquired of the Lord. We had the discussion about mm-hmm. the fact that when Joshua was inquiring of the Lord, it wasn't prayer. It wasn't some ritual worship. It was in the heat of the battle. It was on the fly. And it was very conversational. And it seems to imply that this presence of the Lord with Israel at that point was tangible. Yeah. And if, if it wasn't tangible, it, there's at least an auditory exchange that was going on here. And because how else do you get these these precise statements from God unless your God is somehow manifesting himself? And there's no mention of a prophet uh, anywhere. Yeah. And this also the, this reflects what we find in Exodus 23, thir, uh, Exodus 23, verses 20 through 30. I, I'm not going to read that, but some of the high points is God says, I'm going to send an angel before you. You should obey him. He will not pardon your transgressions. Well, can Angels pardon transgressions, um, for my name is in him. Mm-hmm. Uh, the names at this point in time, again, this is talking about the essence of the person. This isn't just a signifier. Right. So I think when you start to pull these things together, then we, we begin to have, I think we have to accept that this is a representation of God. Um, well, it's like we talked about last week that the, the, you know, ancient Israelites did believe in there was God in heaven who was mm-hmm. God and then God in an embodied form who was also just as much God. Right. And so, yeah, I think well, that kind of piggybacks on that. 
Well, and I, I've got this quote here. This is from Benjamin D. Sommer. Um, he wrote this great book. It's He's Jewish. Uh, this was put out by the Cambridge Press in 2009. So, I mean, it's a really solid source. It's not Christian, uh, although he does um, entertain some Christian's ideas in his argument. Um, this is on pages 40 and 41. It says, in many passages, the word malak, the word angel or messenger that we were talking about, uh, means small-scale manifestation of God's own presence, and the distinction between the messenger and God is murky. The Moloch in these cases is not a being separate from Yahweh, whom Yahweh sent on mission. Rather, it's part of the deity that can act on its own. He is Yahweh, but not all of Yahweh, or the only manifestation of Yahweh. So, very much I hope still... everyone followed that. <laughs> I, I mean... Yeah. Well, and it's this idea that God can manifest himself in a um, form here on earth, but it still doesn't diminish who he is. Right. It doesn't exhaust who he is beyond this. Um, And and Somner, his book, The Bodies of God in the World of Ancient Israel, such a great read. And if you want to go into the idea of how can God's manifest themselves in various locations, he's... He's great. And uh, so I highly recommend that. And links to that will also be in the, um, in the uh, show, show notes. notes yeah. So, um, but he, this Moloch goes on to, to make, you know, kind of outlines where they messed up and what they did wrong. And what I loved um, about his statement here, but you have not obeyed my voice. So basically that command in Exodus 23, they violated because right. God said, you will obey him. And he says, and the, the Moloch asks, what have you done? And that's where we echo back to Genesis. Yeah, well, <laughs> right back there in Genesis. What, do you, what did you do? And, and it's basically God saying, we ha- we, we're having the same conversation over <laughs> and over. Play it again, Sam. And uh, yeah, and, but this also, it's bringing the message back from, I mean, the first chapter is all about military conquest. Mm-hmm. And it's all about the the actions of men. And now the Moloch, uh, he arrives on scene and he says, this is a spiritual conquest. This, we need to bring this back to a theological viewpoint. You miss the point because you miss the theology. Mm-hmm. Now that'll preach. And yeah. I mean, he, he, he's bringing the conversation back to where it's supposed to be. And he's echoing what was said in Exodus 34, that, you know, if you, You've got to obey God, obey my covenants. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you victory. He's going back to what Joshua says in Joshua 1 and Joshua 23. These are the things you need to do. So he's not springing anything new on them. Right. This has been an established pattern. And, you know, one of the things that they're not supposed to do specifically is don't make a covenant with any of these people. Mm -hmm. What did the house of Joseph do? They made a covenant with this Hittite who built a city to remain a Hittite in their own land. Right. And we talked about, you know, in the last episode that this is horrible. Enslaving the Canaanites. God didn't tell them to enslave the Canaanites. Run them out. Uh, Mm -hmm. Contrary to popular belief, most of them were just supposed to be driven out of the land. They weren't supposed to be killed off. There's only a few tribes that were supposed to be completely destructed, uh, destroyed. Right. Destructed. Okay. Um, That's a, it happens. Yeah. Don't worry. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but so what have you what have you done? He's forcing them to face their actions and to face their actions from God's point of view. 
Uh, God's held up his end of the bargain. He's reminding them, I've done everything I said I was going to do. Mm-hmm. I didn't fall down on the job. You did. Uh, but the, the other thing, and I, we are so used to in the Christian church, this idea that whenever you pl- pray to God, that he's going to respond and that there is this, you know, it's, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And that the whole um, idea of this interconnectedness, a, a God who sees and a God who hears and a God who responds, mm. that wasn't the norm. And, and so he's, this messenger is bringing it back around. I do see you mm-hmm. know, this embodied God. I do hear. I do respond. I'm not blind, deaf, and dumb like the Canaanite idols. Right. I'm responsive. And so we're back to that theological groundwork that sets Judaism apart from every other religion that's out there. Mm. And we miss it because we come with our own baggage to the scripture. Yeah, no, it's, that's very interesting. I was actually just kind of thinking about that, how uh, you were talking about the idols and God not being deaf and dumb, like the, the mm-hmm. idols of the Canaanites. And I was actually thinking about that because, you know, God specifically, specifically says not to make a graven image. Mm-hmm. And so here you have, what does God do? He provides his own image. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, in, in the angel of the Lord and then later on in Christ. And so that's... Uh, well, that was kind of interesting to me, just kind of a, a interesting contrast. Well, and even um, in Genesis 2, you know, if you go back to um, John Walton mm-hmm. and the fact that that's a temple account. Right. And the last thing that goes into a temple is the image. What's the last thing God puts in the garden? It's Adam created in his image. Right. And so, and his image is relational. It's responsive. It, it, there's a give and a take there. and over and over again, when we have God embodied in any way, whether it's the symbolic embodiment through Adam, the literal embodiment through the angel, or in Christ, mm-hmm. it's always relational. It's always you know, with God being responsive and, and able to, to hear his people. And right. that, that's, the, that's huge, because in these cultures, gods did not respond to people this way. and. So as he's going forward and he, he's talking about this, one of the things I thought was interesting was this sounds very parental. The right. whole, uh, the whole exchange here is, uh, you know, sorry about your luck. Uh, you, you have to um, uphold your side or there's consequences. I mean, that, that's what it boils down to. Now there is another um, phrase in here that goes back to the Genesis three that you were talking about that the Canaanites are going to be thorns in the sides of the people. Right. And so we, we are, I, I think the writer is very intentionally pushing us back to, to Genesis three so that we will, will be thinking about this, that every bad thing that's happened in this worldview is the result of choices and consequences. Right. Right. So, and then he also says that the gods will be a snare to you. He, he's reminding them that the, the command to drive them out of the country, the, the command to rid the land of the Canaanites, it was for their protection. Mm-hmm. It, this was not just arbitrary. I, I don't like them because, you know, they do their hair funny. Right. The, there's real danger in their presence. And 
It's like it's like uh, you know insisting your your you know your children don't hang out with drug dealers, right? Kind of thing. Yeah, and it really it is that simple. And we saw that in in chapter one with Judah. Whenever they captured uh, Adonai Bezek, they they acted like the Canaanites. They acted just like Bezek. They and that's not what God wants for His people. They're to be holy, which mm-hmm. is set apart. So. How do you stay set apart when you're immersed in a culture that does not worship God, particularly these foundational stages? Right. And I mean, I think that's something that we wrestle with as Christians today. Um, you know, we have to ask ourselves that question. How do we remain set apart while still engaging our culture? Mm-hmm. But this is an entirely different situation. This is this is foundational. This is Oh my gosh, when we get into Deborah, the, the spiritual side of this, mm-hmm. um, it, it becomes so apparent that this, this is a spiritual conflict. And I, I think we forget that. Right. And because it is, I mean, it's a violent book. So um, this, is, this is the last time that God or the angel of the Lord is going to interact so overtly with Israel. Yeah. I, not until Jesus do we have God so intimately present that, that the nation can hear him speak and the nation can actually receive direct commands or corrections from God himself. Mm-hmm. After this, we're going to be going through, we're going through the prophets. Right. And um, that's, that's the reason why the prophets become so important. Because before this, when God was speaking with the prophets, God was still there. I mean, like in Sinai, God was still manifest in a way that everybody could could be aware of his presence. And now it's going to take a greater level of faith. Sure. And that's, it, it, it's kind of sad. So, but memorialized as a place of weeping. And like I said, that's, um, that's kind of how we wrap up that part of the account. Now, as we move forward, we're going to, we've got Joshua's death and Joshua's death is discussed. Um, there's a little confusion on the timeline here because we, we did say that, you know, J- Judges begins with Joshua's death, mm-hmm. but even though the book begins with Joshua's death, the, um, this is kind of remembering back and, and giving us the circumstances of everything that's going to um, happen from this point out. Right. So we, we're still in that very much an introduction to the book of Judges itself. And basically what, uh, probably one way to read this is to say, hey, when Joshua was alive, people listened. They did what they were supposed to do. When the elders who lived alongside of Joshua were alive, they listened. They did what they were supposed to do, but now they've forgotten Mm -hmm. and and they've forgotten because these generations have um, died off. And it's almost, you can almost read it with kind of that grumpy old man commentary going Mm -hmm. on these kids today, you know? Yeah. So one of the, the things that I find to be interesting, and it's almost an aside is that we know that Joshua is buried in Timnoth Heres, which is the portion of the sun. Yeah, yeah, you were talking to me about this earlier. This is really cool. I, it, I was just blown away by this because it, it's almost like just oh, by the way, this happened too. 
And right. <laughs> it, it's the, the Bible doesn't call a lot of attention the to it. Bible's full of stuff like that where they don't call <laughs> a lot of attention to it. You know, it's like, well, uh, you know, we, we watched uh, for the commentarians in July, we watched uh, Gattaca. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of things that add to the story that are not that there's not a lot of attention brought to. And it's right. kind of that it's kind of like a master filmmaker. We has a lot of show and don't tell yeah. uh, kind of thing. <laughs> the opposite of what we're doing here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, and that's, that's the beauty of this. And this is one of the things that I love about studying the Bible is the more familiar you become with the Bible as a whole, the deeper you can dive into the individual passages. Right. Because now Joshua, he's buried at, at the portion of the sun. And this is important because Joshua 10, that's the battle where the sun stood still. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Bible says there's never been, there's been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought in Israel. Now, you want to talk about an honor. There's been no day like this one since God heeded the voice of man. Uh, I w- I'm ready to take that apart at some point. Uh, <laughs> not today. But I was listening to... um Rabbi Silber, and he pointed out that this was part of Joshua's birthright, his inheritance, because Joshua is a descendant of Joseph. Mm-hmm. And when you go back to Joseph's dreams, the, the first we start with the sheaths and the fields bowing down to Joseph. Mm-hmm. But then the second dream, the sun and the moon and the stars, 12 of the stars bow down to Joseph. Right. And so the idea that the sun and the moon and the stars... um obeyed joseph right and now here is joshua commanding the son and having power over that Mm -hmm. so this continuity that's still flowing from genesis to judges and i think sometimes we forget you because we pick up this book and you i've got less than a half inch of pages yeah that this is centuries worth of information. Well, yeah, we forget that. It, yeah, we forget that it's centuries worth of information, and we also we and we forget how connected it is. I mean, just with the the blessings and the dreams and mm-hmm. and all this stuff that that comes together, and how like you they're connected, but we can forget that they're connected because they're separated by so much time. When right. we remember how much time there is, but we also forget how much time there is. Because we can just read through this. We have yeah. centuries worth of material here. And, you know, just like you said, just a, <laughs> just you know, a few let, pages. Yeah, yeah, just about a quarter of an inch of, of book there. <laughs> and, and, and there's so much information packed in. And I think sometimes we get overwhelmed by it that our brain just kind of, it's like we hit the mm-hmm. high points and that's all we hang on to. Um, well, and, and, and because it's not in a style of writing that we are used mm-hmm. to, um, we tend... I mean, I know I personally can tend to like, uh, get a little bit, I can, I can tend to zone out with the way some of these are written because sometimes they are, they are like listening to a six-year-old tell a story, right. um, where it's just, and then this happened and then this happened. Um, you know, it's like, uh, it, it, in the, the old Testament books do feel that way. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, uh, I was listening to N.T. Wright the other day and he was talking about, you know, the Bible's presented in such a way that things are are selected and prioritized in mm-hmm. how they're told. Uh, and the problem is some of the Old Testament books don't feel that way. <laughs> and, you know. Well, I think that's why, number one, and this is kind of a rabbit trail, but the having that mind map of the Bible, mm-hmm. uh, of the way it progresses, 
if you can get that in your head, then it becomes easier to kind of insert these individual narratives into the that greater matrix. And yeah. you can start to have that tension and we can see how the text talks to each other. And then it, it, the individual pieces shine. Right. And, but if you don't have that, then it just feels like they're piled on top of each other. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it kind of becomes, becomes muddled. But that, that's also part of why in Judaism you have these feasts and these festivals that are all about remembering. And that's mm-hmm. part of what's going on here, that the people had failed to keep the feasts and the festivals. Uh, Joshua had either failed to uh, explain to them what they needed to do. The, the elders were not upholding the basic commands. Right. I, they weren't even teaching the Shema at this point, because if they were teaching the Shema, uh, which is, that's the foundational prayer of Judaism, mm-hmm. uh, hero Israel, the Lord, your God is one. And then it goes into teaching your children. Well, if you're, if you're telling you and your family every day that the important part of worshiping God is to teach you and your children about God's word, then you would think at some point you're going to actually teach God's word. And so this is not being observed. Mm-hmm. And so Joshua is, is, doesn't, you know, he hasn't come out smelling like a rose because he had missed part of his calling as a leader. And in doing so, the people, they, they didn't know what they were supposed to do because in verse 10, it says another generation who did not know the Lord or the work he'd done for um, Israel. So the idea that they don't know what's happening, they don't know their own history. That's not just, they don't know history. They don't know who they are. Right. And if you don't know who you are, then how do you be an effective human being? Right. So this, this section of Joshua, both honors him, but it also says, Hey, you know, He's flawed. His, his feet are made of clay, just like anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, verse 11a, and you're going to find this is a repetitive theme that's going to go throughout the Bible. Well, um, real quick, um, you were talking about how that shows that, we'll, we'll come back to mm-hmm. this, but we'll, you know, it shows that he was a flawed character. And what's mm-hmm. really interesting, because I, I have heard people talk about how we don't talk about Joshua and how we should look to him more as a leader because. Um, there isn't any great sin listed of his. Um, and, and, and it kind of goes back to that idea of, well, what is it that really ruins the field? <laughs> you know, it's, is it the big things or is it the little things? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like the little boxes ruin the field, that, that whole bit. Ooh. But where, where, you know, his, where he messed up was not in some great sin of he killed someone or, or he got... Uh, he acted with a lot of hubris, uh, like Moses did toward the end of his life. Um, but that it was the day-to-day things that right. killed uh, his his legacy. It was it was a neglect. Yeah, and, and you know, and it, honestly, I would have to say for most of us, if we're going to talk about temptation, uh, you know, it, it's not to the big sins. Right. I, I'm not going to go out and shoot someone today. I'm not going to rob a bank. I'm not going to, you know, there's a whole list of things I'm not going to do just because it's not me. Right. Um, well, and well, yeah. And, and, and to put that into like some practical terms, you know, there, there's a time in my life where I was, where I was broke a lot and I refer to that as before I got married <laughs> and, um, it, but it, but it wasn't because I bought and sold guitars. 
because uh, I've bought and sold a lot of expensive guitars. Um, but it was because I would eat fast food every day. Right. And it was because I would, you know, eat at a nice restaurant almost every night, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> and so it was those things, it was those little things. That's the reason that mm-hmm. I was broke. It wasn't that I bought an expensive guitar every now and again. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing. I mean, it, it is those small things that add up. And I think with Joshua, because we don't have something big to, to say, ah, oh, this is where, you know, he's so flawed. So maybe his example of where he did fall down on the job is a little too close to home. <laughs> maybe so, so. That, that might be it so yeah. Yeah, i just i i thought that was interesting sorry I, no that's that's good because <laughs> but the um the theme that i was going to talk about there in uh this is verse 11 and this is i'm just going to take the first phrase it says and the people did what was evil in the sight of the lord uh we're going to have this repeated throughout judges and and the implication is because they don't have a strong leader mm. and even the judges are not strong leaders they right. they're very temporal um they they're there for a moment some of them are really just there for literally one verse right um and we're going to get to that one soon but um they're not strong leaders and not having a strong leaders it it, it really diminishes their uh, drive and their desire to even serve God. And the other thing this this phrase is pointing out is that it's evil in the sight of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, only God gets to define what's evil. Yeah. It's not because they're living along just fine, making buddies and pals and friends with the Canaanites. Mm-hmm. Everything's going well. Culturally, what they're doing is acceptable. Yeah. But, we're, we're building great relationships. <laughs> We've got all these people who are our friends. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Yeah. But they aren't doing what God told them to do. And I love Block's uh, definition here. Um, spiritual malignancy uh, is his definition of evil. Okay. I, I, I'm like, whoa. <laughs> that, I, uh, I guess, talk more about that, though, because that, that's. Uh, it, it's It's the idea that. Evil, you know, well, number one, evil's just overplayed. Sure. I mean, we, we talk about evil all the time. You can turn on the news, Facebook, you know, uh, the, the Starbucks cup is evil. The, you know, mm. what's, uh, the new Disney oh. movie is evil. Um, <laughs> it, it, on and on. Is it really evil? And you're saying that ironically. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, <laughs> and for this spiritual malignancy, this is something that actually rots your soul. Okay. This rots your character, your personality, and it really takes you from being the person God said you could and should be into being something so weakened and diseased by sin that you, you're now ineffective. And it, okay. it is going to take God's supernatural, miraculous intervention to redeem you. And that's what we're going to find in Judges, that the redemption of, of the people is going to take supernatural intervention. Okay. And so, and yeah, I just, I really kind of hate it when people use the terms good and evil now, because <laughs> it's just, it is overplayed and we don't know what it means anymore. And, right, right. You know, I, I think I've may have said this before. I know you and I've talked about it. I, I've kind of got to the point where my definition of good and evil is good is anything that draws you closer to God. Mm-hmm. Evil is anything that draws you away from him. Right. And so in, in the circumstance making good friends and having good neighbors in land of Canaan, this is evil. Right. 
And and now I will say God gives us a ver- some very clear guidelines and definitions of of things that are good and things that mm-hmm. are evil. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to throw that out there because that's one of those things that could very easily be abused by, yeah. by a nefarious person. <laughs> An evil person? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I there I do believe in absolutes and um but I, I think that a lot of times we don't even have to stop and look for the absolute if we if we're looking at what are we being loyal to God mm-hmm. and are we drawing closer to him in this particular act or circumstance. Yeah. So and and not only are they doing things that are evil in the sight of God, um verse eleven continues and it tells us what those evil things are. They served Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods of the people around them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served Baals and Asheroth. So I think this is a good point to kind of discuss who Baal and Asheroth were. Well, hold on. You read that because you said you wanted to talk about what the evil was. Yeah. And let's let's make sure we're pointing out the evil was... If you didn't get it, they were serving <laughs> other gods. They're serving other gods and they abandoned God. Yeah. And so the the fact that they, they served other gods and they abandoned gods. And by the way, those two things are so combined. You cannot separate the two of them. Right. You, you cannot, you know, you cannot serve two masters. Right. Yeah. You can't it, serve one God without abandoning another. Exactly. Unless you're talking about pagan gods and then it really doesn't matter. And then we're going to talk about why that doesn't matter. Oh man. <laughs> I just thought of a really wild implication. Remind me to tell you about that off mic. So I don't want to explore that idea right now. But Okay. So, gotcha. So bail is a secular term. Uh, and what I mean by that, um, it just means Lord, master. Sometimes it can mean husband. Uh, so it's kind of a title of respect. Mm-hmm. Um, when we use it for a religious term, it, then it can mean God. But it means God in the same way our English word means God. Because mm-hmm. we can have the God of the Bible, the creator of the universe, or we can talk about pagan gods, or we can talk about Hindu gods, or you know, we can talk about Chinese gods. Uh, it doesn't have to refer to a particular God. Right. And so when the Bible talks about Baal, it, it's not speaking necessarily of a specific type of God or Baal. Right. Um, it occurs over 70 times in the Bible as a divine title. Uh, it re- typically refers to the Canaanite weather God. Right. Now, this Canaanite weather god has multiple titles, just like the god of our Bible has multiple titles. And he, he, Baal Bereth, writer of the clouds, son of Dagon, prince and the lord of the earth. Uh, Baal Zephon, uh, that's Baal of the north. Baal Shemaim, that's Baal of the heavens. And so you have these different titles that explain what the Baal's doing or the god is doing in that circumstance. Right. And Baal can encompass, it, it can, it's usually male, but it can also encompass female deities. And what I think is kind of misleading about most translations here is um, we have Baals in the ESV, it's plural, but most of us don't read it as plurals. And I think several of the translations just have Baal. So it's actually in Hebrew, be Belim. Um, so you've got more than one Baal mm-hmm. and it's acknowledging that they're serving more than one 
form of, of bail that's out there. The thing is, this is where it gets all convoluted because the the language is the language gets so murky because we do have these singular titles that apply to multiple events or multiple beings. And in this situation, we're not talking about many gods, even though it says that they serve Baals. Right. We're talking about that they're they're serving multiple manifestations of the Canaanite god. Right. And yeah. So so go ahead. Okay. So I actually wanted to read the Somner quote again from the uh, the bodies of God in ancient Israel. Uh, the Baal of the Canaanite myth seems to have been fragmented into a number of Baal gods who could be worshipped and addressed separately. Yet these gods show no individual individuation, sorry, individuation of personality, character, or function, and they are always mentioned alongside each other. So when you do encounter Baal in um, in different ancient texts, you find several Baals mentioned together, and it's not individual veils. It's just different aspects of the same veil. Sure. It's like when I, I had this image. Remember this coffee cup mom had with all the different names of God and different colors all the way yeah. around it? Mm-hmm. That It's like, it's all God, but here's the multiple names for him that we can call him. Um, so Baal, he, he's a weather God. And I stole some short cliff notes because I didn't want to go too far into it. Honestly, we couldn't tell most tell most of the Bale stories on air without getting an explicit rating. Uh, um, I have no so, doubt. So um, I'm not going to I'm I'm not going to go into uh, any major in depth thing. But John Walton kind of gave a real nice uh, breakdown in his book Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament. Uh, by the way, uh, if you guys haven't picked up on it before, huge huge fan of John Walton and uh, his work. Really great stuff. Um, so Baal's stories, basically, uh, we've got three major ones. One In the first one, Yom is king. Now, Yom is the Hebrew and Canaanite word for sea. And this sure. is the chaos being. Um, and Baal objects that uh, Yom is king and he, he conquers Yom. So Baal conquers chaos. And this is where a lot of times we hear that. Uh, Genesis 1 is based off of the Baal stories sure. because God... Um, conquers chaos, the tohu vabohu, the void and formlessness of the of the earth. Um, the second story, Baal built his giant castle for himself, and so you know, not a whole lot in that one. Um, didn't really think it was that interesting. Uh, in the hmm. third one, Baal and Mot, uh, Mot's uh, the word for death. Uh, Baal defeats him. Uh, sorry, Mot actually defeats Baal. Okay. And he's sent to the netherworld, and then Baal rises again. And when he arises again, he brings fertility. And so this is kind of, if you're familiar with the Greek mythology of Persephone and going down to mm-hmm. Hades, and she rises and there's, uh, you know, spring reemerges with her. Uh, it's kind of that same idea. Uh, but Baal's, he's a warrior god. Um, he's a warrior god who protects and sustains the world from chaos and death. And that's what these three stories are really about. That that's his job uh, is to keep chaos at bay and keep death from taking over everything. Mm -hmm. So um, he has a a consort and her name is Asarte. 
And uh, we find her mentioned in verse 13. You aren't going to see it immediately because just like Baal is plural in the first verse there, this is the plural form of a, a sarte. So okay. Asheroth is um, several asartes. Okay. And uh, she's Baal's consort, his wife, his sister, whatever she needs to be to move the plot along, pretty much. Uh, she is, I, it's true. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, every time I think of, of a character being like the plot device, <laughs> I always think of R2-D2. Right. Um, it's like he's the Swiss Army knife of yeah. It's basically all he is. He's a he's a. I've heard him described many by many as the plucky plot device. And uh, that, so so I'm sorry. Whatever she needs to be to drive the plot along. That's I'm sorry. Well, and then, yeah, and she she is, I and mean, she's now she's kind of interesting. Um, she she is the goddess of fertility. We have several depictions of her. That you can look them up online. Um, they, there will not be links in the show notes. Okay. Um, <laughs> she, Fair enough. <laughs> she is, um, I'm just going to read what one article, I thought this was well put, <laughs> uh, enormous breast and exaggerated genitalia to depict her role in maintaining fertility. So use your imagination, fill in the blanks. By 1940, archaeologists had already found over 300 depictions of her in one in one uh, dig. Right. And it was in Canaan. Uh, I was looking for more up-to-date dates, and I'd never found it. Um, like Baal, Asarte is also a title, like Lady, Madame. So, uh, but it is typically used um, as to denote the Baal's consort. Her mm. personal name is Anath. Um, so, uh, that's going to be important when we get to one of our judges. Okay. She's mentioned only nine times in the Bible. Now, um, Asherah is mentioned 40 times. These two are not the same. The Asheroth and Asherah, two different beings. Okay. So these are distinct and and we need to remember that. Um, we do have a dig called Tel Bet Mirzim. And it's believed to be that city of Debir, that city of books that we talked okay, about from okay. Genesis, uh, from Judges one. Um, the most commonly found object was Asarte plaques that were dated from this time period mm-hmm. of the Judges. So okay. we know this was going on there, uh, and they, she remained popular until the divided kingdom. So she she had some pretty good staying power, even when Baal kind of fell off. The wag the wayside, yeah, and but she's she's supposed to be his lover, and she she's you know you think of motherliness and goodness and and I I want to really point that out. That's who she is because her character is going to reappear when we talk about um, Deborah and JL, okay. and even though she's not mentioned, it, it becomes a huge part of their story. In a kind of overt way or covert way that unless you're thinking about the culture they're living in and that this is what's going on, this is the reason why it's so important. Judges 2, it's telling you how to read the book. You've mm-hmm. got to have this in mind. Um, she's, she's a warrior goddess and she's sometimes more interested in bloodshed than she is in love. 
uh, she decorates herself with the severed heads and limbs of her of those she kills. So very bloodthirsty. Um, the worship of Baal and Asarte, it was performed through sexual rites. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's based on the myths that I said I wouldn't read on air uh, or couldn't read on air. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think it's really easy for us looking at these texts to go, hey, you know, you guys just went through the Exodus. You just went through all these battles for Joshua where you got to see God do amazing things. And why in the world would you drop the ball and, and leave the God who brought you out of Exodus to, to go after Bel and Sarte? Because sex sells, right? That's essentially, yeah. That, <laughs> that's, I mean, the ancient mind understood that. I think most advertising agencies today understand that. <laughs> uh, I think the only ones who don't understand that uh, is the modern church. Uh, it's very much... <laughs> well, we can't really use that in our marketing. <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't work well. And two, and remember, go back to the death of Joshua story. This is the generation that was born in Canaan. They did not see the plagues. They did not cross the Red Sea. They mm-hmm. were not in the wilderness. The, this is a new generation who didn't witness all that. They were not instructed. Sex sells. This is um, practical. I mean, it, it makes sense in their mind because how else are you going to get to know your neighbors? I mean, really get to know your neighbors. Um, coffee <laughs> works. I guess they didn't have coffee back then, did they? No, not yet. Um, but, you know, it, 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 when I say it's practical, it was working for their neighbors. The people of Canaan were doing just fine mm-hmm. before the Israelites showed up. They, they had a thriving economy. And so it made sense. Yeah, this other God brought us out of Exodus. He was great on the wilderness journey. Yeah. But this is the God who works here in this land. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, remember at this point, we're still talking about people who think that gods are bound by geography. Right. And so it, it's, it is very practical. The other thing we can remember, God had failed them, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, why else were there still Canaanites in the land if God had, you know, if God had won, then the Canaanites would be gone. And, you know, and there's this idea, and we as human beings do it, instead of saying, hey, our, you know, we messed up. Mm-hmm. It must be God's fault. We can't, we can't accept responsibility for what we did wrong in this equation, even though the angel of the Lord just laid out. This is where you were wrong in the equation. Sure. Well, and, and, you know, I, I think there is in this process, and I'm not sure if you're getting ready to touch on this or, <laughs> or if this is kind of where you're going with it, but it's, um, it's kind of whenever, you know, with kids and when you're, when you're raising kids, it gets to a point where there's certain things they can do on their own, mm-hmm. but they still want you to do them. Yeah. And I, I think God is, is setting up his people, you know, and we see this progression, mm-hmm. um, with, uh, manna that when they get into Canaan, well, no more manna. You're going to have to, you're going to have to harvest and cook your own food now. Right. And then after God takes care of some of the enemies, okay, it's time for you to tie your own shoes and <laughs> right. you know, go out and, you know, defeat some people on your own or, or not on your own necessarily, but mm-hmm. you're going to have to do, you're going to be part of the family. You're going to do your share of the work. Right. And, so I think there might be a, an, an element of that, of, of maturity as they go along and 
you know, it's this process and it's the story of God wants us to be mature and he wants us to be able right. to, uh, to not just sit back on our laurels and go, oh, God's going to take care of everything. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. These people were not stepping up and they were not doing their part. And in, in, instead of saying, hey, I, I should have been doing this, I, I think there was this viewpoint that God had somehow failed them. And converse to that, that meant that the gods of this country had won. Mm-hmm. That the gods of this this land were greater than the god that they had served, right? And which you know that's what bad theology does for you, uh, <laughs> right? And we we buy into the lie, and I think the other thing we have to remember about this kind of worship, this wasn't a church service like we think of a church service when we're talking about worshiping Baal or Asherah, we're, or Astarte. We're we're talking. In royal court language, mm-hmm. we're talking about um, a culture where when you were before the presence of someone greater than you, like a king who was supposed to be the descendant of a god, you, you stretched out flat on your stomach and mm-hmm. you, you did not move unless you were told to. You, it, this is abject surrender and submission to these gods. Mm-hmm. This isn't singing Kumbaya around a fire. Um, the um, the worship here is really not easier. I mean, even the idols had to be fed and washed and clothed. And that was part of being a good worshiper of these gods. Right. Um, you know, our God didn't require that. Uh, the, in re- all reality, the servants of, of God, our God, Yahweh, become the servants of Baal. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is active service. This isn't religion today where it's just kind of like oh yeah i agree with presbyterians or i agree with the mormons or i agree with you know yeah and then you just kind of wander off and not do anything you actually are going out of your way to 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 be part of this exactly and i think we forget that i don't think that's part of our mindset today and in order to do that you have to abandon god Mm -hmm. There, there this is not where like today i think a lot of us and i think i know a lot of people i know who uh, oh, yeah, well, you know, I like Buddhism or I like Hinduism and I like and they agree with some of the different tenets. And, I, you know, there are some things that you can agree with, I think, within each of those religions. Um, but at the same time, they aren't practicing it. And I, you know, I've got friends who, who claim to be different religions. They aren't practicing Christian and non-Christian alike. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we we don't have to. um we aren't actually abandoning anyone to acknowledge different things about these religions. Uh, I'm trying to make this make sense because it makes sense in my head. Like, okay, well, okay. So here, here's something. So, uh, you know, Rob Bell's pretty famous for saying, Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, his story about someone using a Gandhi quote in this art, this like apparently Christian art show. And someone else came and wrote beside it, newsflash, Gandhi's in hell. Mm. So, you know, you're talking about there are, there are good aspects right. to various other religions, but um, it, but they're not worshiping God. Right. And so that's really what it comes down to is worshiping God. And so, you know, hit, you know Rob Bell's big contention is really Gandhi's in hell. Uh, you know, but my question is, well, did he... Did he worship other gods, or did he worship, or did he worship Yahweh <laughs> right. uh, through Christ? Um, if the answer is no, 
if he made the choice to worship another god because gandhi has a quote mm-hmm. that i love i very much love your christ but i do not like your christians mm-hmm. and i something to that effect i don't i that may not be exact but it's close enough you can find it on google yeah and so uh you know that's that's the thing you know he he examined christ apparently mm-hmm. he he read the bible he was aware and then and then choosing to worship another god it doesn't matter what good you're doing if you are not worshiping god right because it's not about works and I'm, and again not trying to to say gandhi was a bad person i don't think he was right and uh well who gets to find that again we're back to verse 11 mm-hmm. in the sight of god and and god says abandoning me this is evil Right. And, right. and that, that's the problem. When we, when we go to another religion, we're saying, you're not good enough. I mean, it, it's the same thing with marriage. You know, if we step outside on our, our spouses, then we're saying, you're not good enough. I, I love someone else more. I want something more than I want you to be mm-hmm. fulfilled mm-hmm. and whole and happy within this relationship. Right. And, well, and it goes back to that analogy we used uh, however many episodes ago, that it's not just oh, you, you showed up and someone forgot to take out the garbage. You showed up and found your spouse in bed with someone else right. is what you're looking at, basically. Precisely. And that's a, a totally different setup than, than God, to, a totally different picture than what gets painted of God so often when we hear, oh, he's going to, he, well, I can't believe he'd send people to hell. Well, I, I can't believe, you know, that's, just, that's the same as saying, well, I can't believe you'd actually divorce your spouse over them cheating. Yeah, love is love. Um, yeah. And, you know, as long as you're happy and in love, everything's OK. No, it, it, that's not how the world works. Uh, not to get too uh, controversial, but getting back to judges, one of the things that <laughs> Sorry. we see now, <laughs> I, 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 I can go there uh, easily, as it turns out, uh, <laughs> as we just proved, uh, you know, Joshua, the, the angel here of the Lord is saying, hey, the problem is you've abandoned God now. Put that back into contrast, because, I mean, the angel of the Lord brings up, you know, God who brought you out of Exodus, the God who was with you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in Exodus. This is a God who did not have to be with them. Right. He, he did, he, the creator of the universe, the one who sent the 10 plagues, who's parted the sea, he did not have to be with them. And so this makes the abandonment that much more profound. And, you know, one of the things that I think we as Christians do is we forget that God has an emotional reaction. God has an emotional investment and that mm-hmm. we have the power to hurt his feelings. And I mean, so often that's used as an excuse to get by with so much. I mean, this is a legit thing. When someone really cares about you, we can hurt their feelings. Right. And we have that power. And God's saying, hey. Just like any healthy, whole, rational human being, uh, and I work with women a lot who are in abusive relationships, one of the first things we have to teach them is no matter how much you love the person who's abusing you, you have to set boundaries. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's what God's doing here. He's saying this, this is the boundary. And so anyway, in a, uh, verses 14 and 15, um, this is when we start to, to kind of clear up a little bit more of what's going on. God's not just setting a boundary. He's angry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the Hebrew here. Literally, his, his nose burned. Right. That's how mad he is. His nose burned. Um, and he, it says, he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. 
God's doing this. Uh, he's the one enacting this. This isn't happening because the other gods are rising up and have the ability to to overpower God or to win any battle against God. Well, and yeah, and I don't, well, I, I I don't think it's any God defeating God. But whenever mm-hmm. I, whenever I, I read stuff like this, it's like, well, if we are looking at a divine council type worldview, mm-hmm. then it's not just it. You know, it's he gives them over to the plunderers, and mm-hmm. so it's basically he, he says. Let your guys go to yeah. the other gods. Yeah. I'm, I'm done for a minute. Mm-hmm. See, see what you can do. <laughs> yeah. And then, and at the end of the day, he's like, later on, he's like, yeah, you did a, you, you banged my kids up pretty good, but I'm going to fix it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, and that, I think that's part of having an eternal perspective. Um, you know, it seems horrible that these things can happen to someone here on earth, but you know, this human life is such a blink of the eye. Mm-hmm. And the idea that redemption, even though it begins in this life, it, it's eternal and that we can engage with God on an eternal basis. Mm-hmm. It, it makes anything that happens here into not, I don't want to say it's not as significant. I mean, I, I, I don't want to downplay anyone's experience. I, I don't want to downplay my own experience. Mm-hmm. It, it was significant. But if you have an eternal perspective and a God who can redeem and a God who who will engage in relationship with you throughout all of eternity, then it kind of shifts the scales a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, he, he's like, I can let you, I can let you beat up my kid on the playground today because I am going to be able to fix it and it is going to be okay tomorrow. And it's going to be okay days after that. And I, I can redeem and bring this back around for my glory. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to stop the natural progression of things in order to be glorified. Right. And so it makes total sense. But the, this is what the writer wants to clarify. The, the Baal and the Asherah, they do not win. Yeah. This is, this is all God's doing. And more importantly, they don't represent God. They, exactly. And because, because there, is, there is a train of thought, uh, a field of study out there that wants to try to equate the Baal with Yahweh. And you see a lot of people trying to assume that some of the language in the Psalms that's used to talk mm-hmm. about God is saying that, you know, is saying, that, oh, well, Israel just adopted Baal. Right. As opposed to, you know, actually looking at it as a polemic and using basically Baal's own words against him. For, right. You know, for lack of a better term. <laughs> But yeah, so it's, you know, I I think it's important here to say, you know, no, from the time we get into the land, Mm -hmm. God's drawing a distinction. He's saying, yeah, this is the, this is the land that, that I was inhabited before, but all these other people here, they're not me. Right. And so, yeah, that's, I think that's an important thing to pull out there. It really is. And, you know, we're going to get into some interesting things about this because it's, it is significant that we recognize that God is separate and distinct. And ultimately, even though these gods, quote unquote, oppose him, uh, they wind up serving him. Mm. And he, he's like, yeah, you, you thought you're, you're gaining all the glory. You are winning and you got all the prestige. In reality, you're teaching my people the very thing that they need to know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, because why do they need to know this? Because this is a people who did not know what God had done. They right. didn't know how to fight. and that's what. They needed to know why, because they are going to become one of the most influential kingdoms in that part of the world. Well, in the whole world, really, eventually. Eventually, yeah. Well, and just even on a practical level, they're the crossroads of civilization. I mean, right there by the Mediterranean, 
if you were going from Asia to Europe or Africa to um, Asia, everything went through this. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. this was major trade routes. So um, it, it was a strategically chosen portion of land. Right. And you could not have gotten a piece of land that was better suited for disseminating this information worldwide than the, this place of, called Israel. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if it would have been Australia, if it would have been China, if it would have been Ireland, I, you know, what Oklahoma, it, 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 we wouldn't have the same message. Right. So, um, you know, God's pretty, pretty smart, believe it or not. That's uh, what he's doing. <laughs> so verses 16 through 23, uh, God is talking about how he's raising up the judges. And um, he, this is really, I'm I want to read all of this, and I know this is kind of lengthy, because this is a great summation for the rest of the book. Like I said, this is telling you how to read the book, mm-hmm. so I think this is important. Uh, it says, God raises up judges, people who would not listen. Uh, oh, I guess I actually was paraphrasing in my book. Uh, in my notes, I thought I'd written it out. Mm-hmm. So, uh, again. <laughs> then the Lord raised up judges to save them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way which their fathers had walked, and they obeyed the commandments who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning, because those who were afflicted and oppressed, those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. And they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Because the people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any nations that Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, and whether whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did, or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So this this is the cycle that we talked about. I think we talked about last episode, or it might have been earlier in this episode, they're running together. This is the cycle. The, the, the author, the narrator wants you to know mm-hmm. this is what you're looking at. That he's not hiding anything. He's putting right. all, all his cards on the table. And really the book could have ended right there. I mean, mm-hmm. this is this is the the general outline of all the events. Um, so notice God um, tells them that he's going to send judges. There's no there's no repentance. Right. There, there's never any repentance, and that's the thing about judges. Uh, I think we overlook that. I think we tend to say, "Hey, when the people are crying out that this is repentance," no, it's not. Well, and, and not even that. I remember in Sunday school, I was never even taught that, that necessarily anything was going, going wrong. It was just, it was just, there were people oppressing the Israelites and this mm-hmm. person came along to help them. Yeah. And that was all I, all I really remember getting in Sunday school. It wasn't, oh, the Israelites were being disobedient. And so that's why they're in this situation. It was there are these bad people who are doing bad things to the Israelites. Because they don't was, have a king. Which was terrible. Yeah, because there was no one to protect them. And it was, mm-hmm. it was terrible because the Israelites were just such darn nice people. Which, <laughs> oh my goodness. 
they've but, got a man's thumb and toes off. Well, I know, but it's but that that's the thing, and and that and that just the way it was presented. It's like, well, they didn't like Israel because they were God's people. It was was how it was presented, and and mm-hmm. it goes back to that whole misrepresentation of of Jesus, right? Of well, why did they kill Jesus? Well, he was just so nice that he made everyone else feel bad. <laughs> you know, I I hate that representation because he, he, was he nice? Was he kind? Yeah. Was he, he good? Yes. But was he just so nice that he just drove everyone nuts? <laughs> I don't think that was it. I mean, and, he was preaching some pretty inflammatory stuff here and there. Well, and what I find is to be so interesting, and we we often overlook this, when Jesus being the most confrontational and the most corrective, it was the people within the covenant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That kind compassion, that uh, that patient compassion. Mm-hmm. It's often reserved for those people outside of the covenant, whether we're talking about the Roman centurion, we're talking the Syrophoenician woman, or, you know, we're, we're talking about people on the fringes who, who didn't have an opportunity to learn right. about God. And so, uh, you know, and I think we as Christians, we've done this all backwards. We want to police the rest of the world, but then we don't want to take care of the people within the covenant. Mm-hmm. Um, I keep feeling this tendency to want to preach today. But That's anyway, a, well, I, I get it. But yeah, and, and, and well, you said it's all backwards. It's completely counter to Jesus' own words. That if yeah. you're going to try to take the the speck out of someone else's eye, to get the log out of your own first, and mm-hmm. and yeah, so. yeah, and most of us don't want to do that. So anyway, so uh, do you? How much more do you have on this? Because we we're running kind of long already. Well, we're we're running kind of long. Okay, um, you know, what? let's just wrap it up there. I will pull up a few things from this on our next episode, and then we'll jump right into chapter three. All right. So in summary, Jesus was not just a nice guy. God's Almighty. We screw things up, and He fixes it. Yeah, pretty much. We could end the chapter right there. Okay. <laughs> perfect. Well, we'll we'll end there for now, and then we'll pick this up next time. And everyone out there, thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed it, again, like, share, comment. Please rate or review us on iTunes if you haven't. That helps other people find us. Um, what else we got? Uh, RavenCreeksc.com if you are interested in our other shows or if you're uh, interested in being part of the conversation, you can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RavenCreeksc where you can find us there. Um, in the meantime, uh, we look forward to hearing from you. Hopefully we'll have some good conversation. Yeah. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash Raven Creek SC. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.